just by the lead pastor, Paul, or I'm the pastor preaching. It's not done just by me either. And that is because Four Oaks believes in team teaching. And I wanted to just mention so that we understood kind of what we're trying to do in doing this. There's a critical New Testament principle that the leadership of the local church wasn't invested simply in a person, but in a group of people, in a a group of, of men. And so team teaching is a way to apply that and press that principle down into the local church as as much as possible. And it really does kind of embrace three different ideas. Team teaching does, that is. First, the idea that churches thrive best when they are influenced by more than one voice. So the church is going to be served by a diversity of gifts, even in preaching, uh, so that the church can move forward being blessed and served by, by more than one gift. Also, secondly, the churches are pr- best protected when there are no celebrities. Churches are best protected when there are no celebrities. In other words, building a church around one man can set that one man up for a fall. Building the church around one person can limit the church in what they can get out of that, and it can also set the church up for disappointment and disillusionment. And so we're trying to, to spread that out a little bit more. And I guess there's a third reason as well, and that is that the pastors are best served when their gifts are being used in a team context and when their gifts are submitted to a team. So there's not just one person that's so far out, out in front. And so I want to thank you because you're a church that has, that has supported the move toward that and, and served us in that. And I want to encourage you, please continue to pray for us as we're as we're seeking to faithfully apply this model. Okay, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, we're going to begin in verse 16. The title of today's message is Gospel Fluency. Gospel Fluency, and I'll explain what that means in in a few minutes. But for now, let's just go directly to God's Word, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's talking, of course, about Silas and Timothy. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we we treasure your word and the opportunities that we have to study it because we realize that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it's capable of, of dividing us this morning. And so we pray that you would have your full way as we all together as a church come under your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our title, Gospel Fluency, was really chosen to express one simple idea that I think emerges from this this text, and that is that when you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. And that's really important because, let's face it, I mean, we're all trying to reach those we love with the gospel. We, many of us have one life, one person that we've set our, set our attention on and our prayers upon and our, our initiative towards. And, and we need to know how to translate what we believe, how to translate our message so that person will understand. The Pepsi company learned this the hard way a number of years back. They took their slogan, come alive with the Pepsi generation. They took that to China and the problem was in Chi- they translated into Chinese to Pepsi brings your relatives back from the dead. And uh, Pepsi may kill you, but it doesn't bring your relatives back from the dead. And they learned the hard way because no one was fluent. And because they weren't fluent, they looked foolish, which kind of underscores the lesson I was talking about earlier, which is that when you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. When every bottle of Schweppes tonic water in Italy read Schweppes toilet water, there was a translation problem. When the KFC's slogan of finger licking read in China, we'll eat your fingers off, again, 
a translation problem. All of it, kind of an expensive reminder that when you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. Now, in the first 16 chapters of Acts, the unconquered gospel has migrated out. The power of God has gone forth. And so in chapter 17, Paul has arrived in Athens, this cosmopolitan, urban, metropolitan center that has different people and different customs and different cultures and different languages. And so Paul must once again find the bridge between the good news and a new culture, the good news and a new people. And it's here in Acts chapter 17 that we see the the actual scope of Paul's skills in gospel translation. And it's also here that we see what I think is certain stages that Paul passes through which display his gospel fluency. Now, don't be intimidated by that word. When I say gospel fluency, fluency is just an ability to, to speak another language clearly, articulately. So when I talk about gospel fluency, I'm simply saying the ability to translate the gospel for the people or person you are reaching. The ability to translate the gospel for the people or the person you are reaching. So in Acts chapter 17, we see these certain stages that Paul passes through, and they're stages that we must pass through as well in order to get the gospel across to the people that God has called us to share it with. So let's look at these stages together. These are stages of gospel fluency, beginning, of course, with stage one. Gospel perception. Gospel perception. Gospel perception is seeing and understanding fallenness through the gospel. Seeing and understanding fallenness through the gospel. Now, look at how this worked for Paul. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, just imagine this picture for a second. We have Paul in Athens. He's there, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, and he's, he's looking around, and he's pondering what he sees. He's in the culture, but he's studying the culture. And actually, what he sees and what he perceives alarms him because the landscape is filled with idols. The Athenians worshipped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of idols. In fact, they worship so many gods, they even haven't had an idol to the unknown god just to make sure they were covering all their bases. They didn't want to miss any. In fact, in this commentary on Acts, John Stott says, quote, this is what Paul saw, a city submerged in idols. It was like a tidal wave of idols had just washed over the city, and the city was submerged in idols. And so this is what Paul saw, and in verse 16, it says that Paul was, quote, provoked by what he saw. Greek where there is paroxymo. It means greatly distressed. It's, it's a complicated emotion. It's a, a blend of anger and sorrow mixed together. And so he, he's, he's not only seeing something, but he's feeling something. How come? Because he has gospel perception. He's seeing their fallenness, but he's seeing it through the lens of the gospel. And he's feeling what God felt for the Athenians. See, to gain gospel perception, to gain the ability to see and understand fallenness through the gospel, we have to be out and among the people. 
You know, Paul in verse 16, is, 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 he's waiting for them in Athens, but he's, he's among the people. In fact, you see this even more in verse 22. He's standing in their midst, and this is what he says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I, listen to this, as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. So here's a man, he's in the culture, he's, he's looking around, he's passing along, he's observing, he's reading, he's studying, he's thinking. See, these are not clinical trials for Paul as he's among them. He's not looking for people, or he's not looking at the people and the idols through some kind of microscope, you know, coldly detached in a lab jacket, in a laboratory, completely detached from those he's trying to reach. He's not just reading about them. He's not Googling them. He's not blogging about them. This isn't some kind of just curiosity he has. Paul is among them because he wants to reach them. He's not a tourist just passing through. Paul's Paul's more like a missionary called to a people, a missionary that wants to, he feels the heart of God and wants to reach the people. A tourist among a people is really only just, just passing through. The tourist wants to see the best sides or the best places when he goes to, to visit. I was just with a pastor this past week. He was telling me uh, he, he's, he's been traveling into Cuba for a number of years. And he was telling me how for years the Cuban government, communist government, only wanted the tourists to see a certain side of Havana so that everything they saw looked beautiful. Everything they experienced was spectacular. All of the ex- experiences that they carried away would be memorable because Havana was so, so beautiful, because they knew that a tourist only wants to see something good. That's not how Paul was among the Athens people. Paul was a missionary. In other words, he was not afraid of the fallenness. He was looking for the fallenness. He was studying the fallenness. See, to a tourist, a culture is kind of charming. But to a missionary, he sees the idols of the people. She sees the idols that are there, and it breaks her heart. Again, Paul's among them. He's studying them. He's considering, like, he's thinking hard about what does motivate these people? What's behind? What drives them? What are they thinking about? What is behind these idols? He's walking around the city. He's actually reading to the unknown God. So he's studying the altars, to see what the idols may say, seeking to understand what drives the people, seeking to understand what do they really worship around here. And there's a sense that once he saw, he began to ask questions that deepened his understanding of the people, which then kindled God's passion in his heart. This wasn't a sightseeing tour for Paul. This wasn't just a tourist trap that he was visiting. See, A missionary tries to discern what makes people tick. Tourists aren't like that. They just want to be be entertained. Tourists look at people, and all the people look look the same when they travel to a new area. I remember being at a conference once, and uh, I I had preached in the morning, and then I was having lunch with two guys who would ultimately become friends, but they were both from Sri Lanka. And so I was meeting them for the first time. So I preached in the morning and then went and had this meeting with them and, and had a wonderful, like, two-hour lunch. And then at the conclusion of the lunch, I kind of went to say goodbye to one of them. And I kind of came close, and I, I shook his hand, and, and I came close to his face to say goodbye. And he said, wait a minute, you, he said, you were the guy that, that spoke this morning. And, 
I said, well, yeah, that was me. I had the, I had the privilege of speaking. He said, ah, you Americans, you all look the same to me. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the point of that is that, that culture can obscure our ability to see differences, particularly when we're among them as tourists. Gospel perception helps us to see not just the people, but helps us to understand the fallenness through the gospel, the, fall, the idols that the people worship at, helps us to understand what they really worship. So, there's gospel perception. And then that leads to gospel, that leads to stage two, gospel engagement. Gospel engagement. See, this is where, gospel engagement is where perception moves Paul and should move us as well to action. Towards gospel engagement moved Paul towards engaging different groups with the gospel. And as we continue on in the passage, the passage actually lists four different groups that Paul engaged. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue. That means he was reasoning with the Jews. So he's there, he's reasoning from the Old Testament, bringing the Old Testament to bear on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then it says, Next, it says, he was in the marketplace. That would have been a completely different group of people. That would have been the Greeks. That would have included um, other people outside. That would have included Gentiles. And then it goes on in verse 18 to talk about the Epicureans. The Epicureans followed a guy named Epicurus, died around 270 B.C. He taught that, that there was really no afterlife, and because there was no afterlife, Life should be about enjoying pleasure and avoiding pain. Enjoy pleasure, avoid... So these are like the old school hedonists, the Epicureans. And then alongside of them, but rival to them, they're like a rival gang, you know, in, in the Areopagus. And they, these were the Stoics. And the Stoics believed that, you know, there could be a god or gods, but there was a fate And because there was a fate, life can't be about pleasure, but it must be about duty. In fact, duty to whatever deity that you're about. Being submitted to the God that you serve. So these are like the old school fundamentalists, but they're stoic. They believe in duty. When James James Stockdale, who who flew a fighter jet in the Vietnam War, when his, his jet was shot down over Vietnam in 1965, he was... he ejected out of his jet, and he was parachuting to the ground. And as soon as his foot hit the ground in Vietnam, and he realized he was going to immediately be captured and taken to a prison camp, which he was, where he remained for seven years, he said, he said this when his foot hit the ground. He said, I am now leaving the world of technology, and I'm entering the world of stoicism. I'm entering the world of Epicurus. In other words, he was saying, What he meant was the only way to survive what I'm about to engage in, the only way to survive this prison camp is for me to focus on duty and to to take control for, for, for the few things that I have control over. And he became a stoic. Now for Paul, Paul was among them. He's actively engaging them. And he's doing it by meeting them right where they are. In other words, they're not having to come to Paul. Paul is among them in Athens. He doesn't expect them to come to him. Paul goes to them. That's where the passage starts. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's out. He's about. He's visiting. He's reading. He's just checking 
checking things out. And here's what I want to here's what I want to unpack with you is that as Paul's among them and he's seeing their fallenness, he's reading their idols. There's a sense where seeing them even in their sin didn't disgust him. You know, it, it actually moved him to engage them in a deeper way. And part of what I take away from that is, you know, we're, we're never going to win people whose sin we react to. We're never going to win people if we're just reacting to the idols that we perceive that they worship. Another way to say this is we'll never react people that we're adversarial towards. We'll never, react, we'll never win people that we're adversarial towards. You know, one of the main reasons, this is just me, okay, it's just me. One of the main reasons I rarely watch Fox News is because of the way it affects me. Now, it affects, Fox News affects people differently, I get that. But I come away with a sense, and again, this is just me, I come away with a sense that the folks that don't buy that brand of conservatism are just a bunch of liberal morons. And that, that feeds my self-righteousness. Again, just me. But that feeds my self-righteousness, which doesn't need to be fed because my self-righteousness operates each and every day, fat and happy. And it does not need to be fed by anything else. But what it does is it, de- it, it kind of puts me in an adversarial relationship with those that I want to reach. We can't reach people, we can't win people that we are adversarial toward. We can't win people that we don't care about. We can't win people that we're ambivalent about. Try saying to your neighbor next time you see him, I, I, I know we've never met, and the most that you've ever gotten from me was a, a, a nod of my head as you're backing out of the driveway, but would you like to come to my church? Would you like to hear about my Savior? Would you like to hear about the God that I worship? Listen, we can't win people we don't care about. It's funny, up on the screen, we're, we're flashing up the Walk for Life, the incredible work that the pro-life community is doing and, and the work that Four Oaks has been a part of for so many years. Roe v. Wade started. Jane Roe, who was she? Norma McCorvey. Norma McCorvey was, was converted a number of years ago. She was converted when she worked in an abortion clinic. She actually, she actually worked in an abortion clinic across the hallway from a, uh, fr- from a, a pro-life clinic, a, a, a clinic that was helping people in crisis pregnancies. She used to call the people at the crisis pregnancy center and said, hey, you know what we're doing over here? We're killing babies and hang up. She was so embittered. And so the people at the crisis pregnancy center began to say, how can we see the, the, the things that, that Norma needs? How can we see the worship behind the idolatry there? And, and began to reach out to her began to send over gifts, and sometimes the children would visit them, and they'd send the children over, and, they'd, and slowly but surely, they, def, they, they befriended Norma, and then they began inviting her out to things, and eventually one day, she went, and then somewhere in there, she was converted to Christ. All of the adversarial relationships, and, and let's be honest, there are a lot of Christians that would have walked in there and told, told her what they really think about her life message. But all of the adversarial, you know, relationships that she could have had, what won her were people that cared about her. What won her were people that loved her. Again, 
We can't win a culture that we don't care about. We can't win a people that we're adversarial towards. We can't win a people that we're ambivalent about. I t- you know, I told you a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of months ago, I guess it was, that I, I was trying to reach my neighborhoods, my neighborhood, and uh, as one of the ways I was doing that, I, I went and I stuffed the mailboxes with, uh, you know, with invitations to my home to do like a, a just a Bible study from on marriage from Scripture. I was just thinking, okay, what what do people need? And, and I've been thinking about that, and, and nobody came, and that's cool because I just wanted, you know, I'm, I'm finding my way here in a, in a new city. But I've been thinking about it. I realize, you know, the, the, the first step in a new area may not just be to go out and invite people into your home. It, maybe it's to go out and meet them where they are. Actually, somebody from the church here, and thank, I'm so grateful they did this. I don't even know who it was, but they wrote on a, a, a gray card, you know, why don't you just walk around your neighborhood and why don't you pray for your neighborhood? I thought, yeah, boy, I think I missed a few things here. You know, an opportunity to just bathe this in prayer, an opportunity to get out there and care. And I think I'm seeing that a little bit more clearly because the, the idea that Paul wrestled with in Athens is becoming clear to me, that the way that we enter the field matters to the Lord of the harvest. The way that we go into the field. I mean, think about what Jesus did. He wants to reach those who are hostile to his word. He wants to reach those who violate his will each and every day. He wants to reach those who, have, who want to have nothing, nothing to do with him. So what does he do? He leaves the glory that he had from eternity past. He wraps himself in flesh, in frail humanity. He comes among us, and he loves us, he serves us, he cares for us, he eventually dies for us, rises on the third day, and he transmits the the truth about the horror of our condition through the way he loves us. Do, Do you see the point I'm making? Jesus didn't come reacting to everybody's idols. Jesus came and engaged the people. He didn't come and see the idols that, that they worshipped and that we worship and just, just withdraw from us because he was so aghast that we would fall so far. No, he engaged us. And Paul engaged people as well. In fact, he engaged them so effectively, he was eventually invited to come into the Areopagus, which leads us to our next stage, stage three. Stage three, gospel facility. Now, don't let that word throw you. Facility just means ability. It means skill in action. So it just means the ability to take the gospel and apply it. So gospel facility is about how we engage the culture. In other words, it goes beyond just seeing fallenness, but it it, it goes to to seeing the idols and interpreting those idols in light of the gospel. So Paul goes to the Areopagus. By the way, the Areopagus is just the you know, that's a combination of like a university campus, a town square, and a pub. It's the place where people went to relate and debate and talk together. And then he begins preaching at the Areopagus. And, and, and he begins by just saying, you know, I perceive that you are religious, verse 22. And I've noticed a particular altar. It's the altar to the unknown God. And I want to make known to you that which you do not know. And so then he walks them through an introduction to theology. God is creator, verse 24. God is self-sufficient, verse 25. God is ruler, verse 26. 
And then he quotes a couple of Greeks, and he brings it all home with a call to repentance and basically gives an altar call. It doesn't give an altar call, but he basically calls them to repent. But <clears throat> before we read through all this too quickly, I, I want to make sure that I slow it down, even slow down what I'm saying, because I don't want any of us to miss what is a very impressive display of gospel facility by Paul. And this is seen in two different ways. First, it's seen in Paul's connection to the culture. Now, now let me explain to you what I mean. See, Paul has not only perceived their idols, but he's read their authors, and he's listened to their music. See, Dave, what are you talking about? Well, look, verse 28. Paul, in verse 28, when Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, that's not Paul talking. That's Paul referencing a popular hymn that was in circulation for many years that they sang. It's not a Christian hymn. It's a cultural hymn. It was a hymn to Zeus. It was written by Epimenides. And Paul is pulling it out, pulling out from their pop culture and portraying it as a way to make a statement about God. And then he moves on later in just another verse. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. There he's going to a Stoic poet and pulling something out of a poem that was popular. You see what's happening here. See, for Paul, those expressions of pop culture, art, music, literature, those expressions of pop culture told him something about their beliefs. And so he studied it. And so he considered it. He may have even enjoyed it. But he, he did so understanding that there were, you know, if, if, there's, if, the, if the culture is a coin, there's two sides to the cultural coin. And Paul is, I think, displaying both of them here. And we don't have time, we don't have time to unpack like a full theology of culture, but, but let me just say it this way. One side of the coin is Paul realizes that culture carries values. Culture always carries values. It carries a worldview. So whether it's books, TV, whatever, you know, there's always some kind of worldview, some kind of assumptions, some kind of presuppositions that are being assumed and telegraphed. The other side of the coin is culture reveals needs. So culture carries values. Culture reveals needs. Certainly culture carries values. We read a book. We visit a website. We watch a movie. And, and, and what we have radiating towards us is some belief system, some worldview that, that's coming at us. And, and here's the thing. Christians largely understand this. They discern this. And often they live reacting to this, reacting to culture, because they see believers who are mindlessly swallowing culture to reach the culture. And there's something inside of the believers as they see that taking place that, say, that are saying, I don't think we need to become like the world to reach the world. You know, would Christ sit with liars and hookers and, and, and tax collectors to reach them? Well, yeah, he would. Would it be evident that he's not one of them? Well, certainly, it would, absolutely. So, so Paul sees that culture carries values and, and realizes we have to discern the values and distinguish ourselves in certain ways. But Paul also is able to see the idols. He's able to read the books, listen to the music, and see the need that is revealed in the idol, to see the need that is revealed in the culture. 
See, we, we tend to just see altars all around and just react to them. You know, many Christians around today would, would organize a boycott of Publix for the altars that they sell. Or, 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 or condemn those who are using the altars. Or, or start blogs about the dangers of the altars. And by the way, there's a place to do all of that. But, but the point I'm trying to make is you don't change idols you don't change idols by reacting to idols. That's not a, the way you change idols is by holding up a superior affection, by holding up something that is more worthy, something that is more glorious for other people to, to pursue. And we have to get this or else as we're relating to our one life, we're always going to be reacting to the ways that they may be sinning. I mean, you can apply it anywhere. You can apply it within your marriage. You can apply it with, within your home. I think, as a parent, I think there were many times I reacted to the altars that my kids admired, the idols that my kids admired, rather than studying them, to un- studying the idols to understand what, what need they're meeting in my children or what need they're declaring to me about the culture. You know, what, what does it mean that teenagers worship their peers? What does it mean that teenagers are, 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 are gaga over Beck or Bieber? You know, okay, yeah, that's, what does it mean? Or, you know, let's, let's move it into the middle-class adult person. What does it mean that, that there are the idols of recreation or, or leisure or children? That's a huge idol among the, the middle class. It's a respectable idol, but it's an idol nonetheless. What I'm saying here is that Paul had a kind of gospel facility, which meant that he was able to see what the idols revealed about their sins, see what their idols revealed about their longings, about their emptiness, and to bridge from there over to the gospel, which meant he was able to hear the music and read the books and see even traces of divinity so that he could bring that forward. He's quoting these poems, but he's seeing, yes, all truth is God's truth, and therefore I'm going to pull out the truth from this poem and hold it up as a way to make a gospel bridge between where they are and where Jesus is and help them to walk over that bridge. So what we have in Paul, Paul was neither the hip Christian you know, trafficking in pop culture, nor was he the fundamentalist always reacting to pop culture. He was gospel fluent. And gospel, he had gospel facilities. So, so the first point that I'm making is that, uh, you know, this whole gospel facility was seen in two ways. The first was Paul's connection to the culture. The second was Paul's boldness with the truth. In other words, Paul did all that, but he didn't stand before the Athenians wanting to be liked, wanting to be respected. He was part, he engaged the culture, he stepped into the culture, but he didn't need the approval of the culture. He looked for common ground, but then he preached eternal truth. I mean, look at verse 30, the way he's bringing it there. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which there will be a judge. So he's basically saying, you were ignorant, now you're ignorant no longer, therefore you must repent because you will be judged. Do you ever find yourself, you know, Wanting to make Jesus more palatable. You know, to offer a king without a cross, to offer a, you know, a relationship without any repentance. 
you know, back in the 70s when I became a Christian, the message I responded to was basically, come to Jesus and he'll give you meaning. Come to Jesus and he'll improve your life. And, and that's certainly true, but it's incomplete. It's, it's true, but it was sanitized substantially. I guess what I'm trying to say is you can't be fluent in a language and just speak the easy words. You can't be fluent in a language and, 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 not, and avoid the hard words. See, Paul was going to the hard words. Why? Because he was fluent, because he had facility, because he included the hard truth. He used words like repentance and judgment. And if we're going to reach this culture around us, we're going to have to use those words as well. That's what will help us to become gospel fluid. Which leads us to the final stage, stage four, which is gospel response. So we're talk- again, the title of the message is Gospel Fluency. And, and we're talking about how Paul's gospel perception led to gospel engagement. Gospel engagement displayed his gospel facility. And then all of those things converged to lead to gospel response. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and a woman Damaris. Okay, so, so we have these three groups that, and their responses. In verse 32, we learn that some mocked. And, and, it, and it, you know, it's good to have that included here as we're thinking about how, how, what we're going to get as we go forward with the gospel. It's good to remember that truth provokes people. It's wise to keep that in view as we go to share the gospel with our, our one life. Some mock. Even Paul, the guy who had been to the third heaven, some mocked. And then others were curious. There's that that statement in 32b, we will hear you again about this. And by the way, as you read that, there's, there's really nothing noble about that curiosity. Basically, Paul's preaching. He preaches about the resurrection. He hits a nerve. It ends abruptly. They basically stop him there. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, verse 32, some mocked. Others said, you know what? Let's shut this down. We'll hear you about We'll, we'll talk about that some other day. So there's nothing noble about that. It's just a courteous dismissal. But then there's this other section. It's small. It's short. mentions a couple of names. Verse 34, others believed, among them Dionysius, Damaris. The God who was unknown to them became known. I love that. I love the way this section ends with the specific mention of two individuals who came to Christ due to the message. In other words, many people heard, but, you know, yeah, a few responded. There was a lot of work that Paul did. Oh, man, he was studying the culture, engaging the culture, preaching among them, studying the altars, but not a lot of fruit. And that that says to me something. That says to me that at the end of the day, you know, this is really what it's all about. God taking our many efforts to touch maybe a few. God taking our many efforts to touch maybe even just just one. And when I think about that, that doesn't discourage me. That actually gives me hope. That gives me hope for my neighborhood 
that I was talking about earlier. Because I may need to try a number of things. I may need to try to touch many people in many ways just to see one come to Christ. And maybe you feel the same way. You know, if you're anything like me, you can tend to feel like, tend to feel almost foiled by God because God didn't bless the little you've done. You know, Lord, I've been praying for so long, and I've been reaching out, and I've been doing all I can and trying to invite them to different places. And, you know, I think from this text, we could just hear God saying, hey, you know, just relax. Follow Paul's example. Paul's take is, hey, I planted, Apollos watered, but the growth, well, that's up to God. And this is, again, this is the guy that went to the third heaven. This is the guy that saw Jesus when he was converted. But he's saying, you know what? I don't get a lot of fruit. I just, I just do my best. I'm just sowing when I can. Other people come along and water, but God will give to the growth. Which is just another way to say the guy who plants and the guys who water don't always see the fruit. We don't always see the fruit. Our job is not to see the fruit. Our job is just to keep sowing. In fact, the mission that we're called to right here in Tallahassee, you, right in your neighborhood, you, right in your job or among your family, the mission that we're called to is to so much and trust God. So much, trust God. Which means, perhaps for you right now, it's time to try a little more. Try a little more. Do you feel discouraged today? Maybe discouraged with the absence of fruit. Well, try a little more. You know, so more, trust God. Try a little more. Do the people that you love appear like they're far from God, yet they're content to be far from God? Well, try a little more. You know, they're, the, the guy that we're hearing from this morning, by the way, there was nobody more content or self-satisfied in their, in their unbelief towards God than the very man that we're studying this morning. Paul was the same. Try a little more. Do you feel like you've, you've run out of ideas for your one life? Well, you know what? The reality is you're not fluent yet. Try a little more. Most of us are here because somebody took that approach with us. Most of us are here because someone was fluent enough to speak the gospel to us. In other words, they didn't give up. They tried a little more. So let's, you know, let's, let's pray together that God would help us to so much and to trust him. God would help us to, to keep from giving up. He would help us to... You know, try a little more. So that what's said of Paul and the way this section ends in verse 34 might also be said of us as well. Some men joined him and believed. I think it was because he tried a little more. Let's pray.